you know, I hope that you're feeling welcomed in. I hope that you're feeling that this is an, an open door for you to step into community and get connected with the Lord and with others. My wife and I were at a restaurant this last week, and a young man, he's 22, he introduced himself to me at the end of the meal. That was kind of him to wait till the end of the meal, and he just said, hey, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And, and so, of course, he's familiar with the Branches community, and you know, he told me he's not a believer, but his girlfriend is, and so he's going along with her to church, and he's here in the Branches community, and I, first of all, just complimented him, good move, man, you're in the right place, you're doing the right things right now, going along with her, being in this church community, but I'm hoping that, you know, whether you have no context for the Lord, you have no faith, or maybe you're brand new in church community, you don't know much about the Bible, this is a safe and welcoming place for you to discover faith, to discover who Jesus is, to learn about the Bible. What's amazing is we, we preach from the Bible every single week. We've been moving through this book for a year and a half that we're in right now. So if you stick around long enough, you will know the Bible because we move through the Bible every single week. So please, uh, you know, everybody's had their first time in church. Everybody's encountered church community for a first time. This is a safe place, a welcoming place for you to join in and be a part. Glad you're here. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 27. We are two weeks away, including this week, from finishing this journey that we started on Christmas Eve of 2021 when we were still distanced from each other. Is that not astonishing or what? And you know, I, I was thinking at one point, man, we got to get this thing done. We got to move through Matthew. How long is everyone's attention span? Can we finish this in a year? And then I started like kind of like picking, okay, these are the places that we're going to emphasize. And then I stepped back and I said, wait a minute, who am I to pick and choose which words of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, we're going to teach on? And I just set that aside and said, you know what, we've got the attention span. We can move through this at the pace where we're going to go through everything that's in this book. And man, we are near that finish line right now. It is Easter Sunday in July. We just got done with Good Friday last Sunday, looking at the crucifixion account, how the cross is a symbol of our salvation, but it's also a symbol of our sanctification. Now we get to look at this account of Jesus's resurrection from the dead as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's read here. Matthew 27, Starting in verse 62, Jesus has just been laid in the tomb. And we're picking up here, verse 62. The verses will be on the screens. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath had dawned on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Let's pause in our reading right there this morning. As the resurrection account begins in the Gospel of Matthew, we've got the chief priests and teachers of the law who approach Pilate with their concern about this potential resurrection hoax. Jesus had never personally informed the chief priests and the teachers of the law about this prediction of him rising from the dead on the third day, but we can assume that Judas, the betraying follower of Jesus, was their informant at some point when he was still alive. So these chief priests and elders, they request an official Roman guard be placed at the entrance of the tomb that's already secured with a stone at this point, but this is to ensure that there's no funny business, you know, there's nobody going in there and taking the body and saying that he had raised from the dead. And they say in their words, you know, that deception would be worse than the first deception, which was the claim that Jesus was king, king of the Jews. So here they are going, man, you know, the people were deceived already and we don't want them to be further deceived, so will you please make sure the tomb is secure? Big brother always knows best, right? I mean, this is always the behavior of institutions, whether they be corporate or political, uh, you know, whether they be religious, uh, you know, there, there's always this group of leaders at the top who know better than the people. They're out for the benefit of the people. I think about corporations like Facebook and Google, you know, we always sign these privacy notices, right? Anytime you like sign up for something or, you know, every month or so, they make you re-sign these, these privacy notices, which are about how you're giving up your privacy, right? I, I mean, who has actually read one of these things and gone through all the fine... You have. Well, God bless you. Please summarize that in a Cliff Notes version and send it to me. What in the world I've been signing? I know somewhere in there it says, you have no privacy and we're selling everything that's yours. You know, I know it's in there somewhere, right? I, I was uh, actually on my TV connecting it to Wi-Fi and I found this button that was unselected. Everything was you know, by default selected. But at the very bottom, there's a strange button. It says if you you selected it, it means do not sell my personal information. And of course, that's the one that's unselected by default so that they can continue to sell my personal information. But I go down to it and you hover over it and it tells you like this whole story about why this is beneficial for you that they sell your personal information. So you can get personalized content as if I couldn't find the content that I want to watch for myself. No, this is not about me. It's couched in, you know, a benefit to me, but it's really about them making money 
off my personal information. And this is the same dynamic that's going on right here. Oh, we don't want the people to be deceived. No, what they don't want is for the people to be influenced away from their authority structures. You know, they're not concerned for the general population like many leaders. They see the general population simply as a food source to feed their parasitic egos. That's what this is really about. And Pilate, you know, he's right there with them. He's complying. He's a politician. So he settles the matter and sends the guards and sets a seal upon the stone, possibly with rope and wax. And the guards are there posted, like I said, at the entrance. Now, None of that is going to matter for someone who has the power and authority to rise from the dead. None of that is going to matter. For as the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, go to approach the tomb, they feel an earthquake and see an angel descend upon the stone, move it to the side. He rolls it back and then he sits upon it. Up until this point in Matthew's gospel, every angel has occurred in a vision or a dream, but we know that this is bona fide, real angel material before them because the glory and luminance is such that it causes the guards to shake violently, to turn, I know, I imagine just white as a sheet and then faint like they're dying. Now, you know, I've never fainted out of shock. I don't know if you've fainted out of shock. I know my wife's dad fainted out of shock one time. She was eight years old. She's playing on the jungle gym. She fell off of it. And then she actually broke a bone in her arm and it was sticking out of her arm. And she went over to her dad and her dad instantly hit the ground. Not a lot of use. Not a lot of use. What's, what's happening when that, when that occurs? Well, you know, your, your fight and flight instinct, you know, kind of kicks in, right? And so your blood vessels dilate in your extremities, so your blood pressure drops. Your heart rate's supposed to kick up. So you can still keep pumping blood to the rest of your body. But when we're shocked, sometimes it confuses the regulation of our heartbeat, and it goes down. So blood pressure down, heart rate down, blood can't get to the brain, and bam, you're out. These individuals, they have this instinct to run, to escape from the sight that they're seeing. But the shock causes their heart to be confused, and so they drop like dead men. You know, the angels are not bringing a message of death, but a message of life. For the angel declares to the women what has happened. Verse 6, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is not here. Come see For yourself, the angel invites them to see the place where his body was laid, to see the empty tomb that had previously been sealed with the stone and with the Roman seal over it. And having validated the claim, the angel then instructs these women to go be messengers of the good news of Jesus' resurrection to his followers in Galilee. Now the fact that the women see Jesus first is an exceptional part of the resurrection story that's worthy of a few moments to notate. These women, if you've been following the account through the Gospel of Matthew, they're like this faithful baseline, you know, in the background of Jesus' followers. You know, the Gospels tell us that they've been funding Jesus' ministry at times. They've been caring for His needs. Last week we saw that as the Majority of the men scattered. The Gospels tell us that John perhaps is still there, right? But the rest of them had gone. The women were there. They were still watching. 
And here they are, the first to see and hear this message that Jesus is risen. And if you're fabricating a resurrection story, these are the last people that you'd put first at the tomb, first to hear the message and first to see the risen Jesus because of the views of women at this particular time in history, just as through most of history, women were seen as less than full persons. They were seen as unreliable witnesses among the men. It's like how we view politicians in general today. You know, we, we view politicians in general with like that cynical skepticism. That's how men just felt about women in general and about their role as witnesses, while God himself turns them into the first evangelists and heralds to go gather the scattered men. Now, if you don't like that and the way it sounds because of whatever reason, whatever motivation you have, then you don't like God's will and his word because that's plain as day what's happening in this scripture. You know, the sometimes cynical King Solomon once said, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 28, among a thousand men... I've found only one that's upright, one that's righteous. And among women, not a single one. That's a teaching that ages well, doesn't it, with the times? You know, Tracy's entering the slides. It's like, you're going to what verse today? I I don't know what to do with that verse, right? Well, you know, Solomon had a great survey of women because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's the thousand that apparently he was pulling from, and because of that, I would likely say that he wasn't the one righteous man that he'd found. But God said, I have not one but two women who will play a prominent and privileged role in the most significant event in human history ever known. And these women, filled with a mixture of fear, probably shaken, and yet shaken with joy, take heed of this commission to go tell the disciples. And while on the way, they encounter Jesus for themselves. And it's a bit anticlimactic here, how Jesus enters in on the scene. You know, what what do you say when you conquer death and you've taken your rightful place at the right hand of God? You know, I imagine pyrotechnics. I imagine WWF style entrance. And all we get from Jesus is this very just commonplace, hello, in verse 9. Greetings. Their reaction seems a bit more natural, I think, for us who believe. I think this is what our instinct will be when we encounter the risen Jesus for ourselves. In awe, they grasp his feet. In reverence, they're bowed down and they begin to worship him. He comforts them at first, just as the angel did, saying, Do not be afraid, and instructs them again to go into Galilee and encourage his brothers about the good news of the resurrection. Some of the guards were told, go back to the Sanhedrin leadership. That is, again, the Jewish equivalent of their Supreme Court. They're bearing only bad news. After hearing what happened, it's clear all the leaders care about is covering for themselves. They bribe the guards with a story which puts the disciples of Jesus in this role of frauds, promoting, again, this hoax of stealing the body. And they make these commitments that if the guards, you know, and their misbehavior is found out by Pilate, the Roman governor, that they'll actually cover for them. You know, Matthew says this was a powerful rumor, this rumor of the body snatchers that was used by the Jews to explain the disappearance of Jesus' body right up to the writing of this gospel, which happened several decades later. And so concludes the account of the resurrection in the book of Matthew. Matthew. 
I want us to reflect on the significance of the resurrection through this material that's here in the book of Matthew. And I think the best place to start is following up on where we left off in the last few verses of the account that we've read. We've got to assert the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. So let's start there. The resurrection of Jesus is a true historical event. I believe it. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't have been spending the last 20 years of my life since I was age 15 committed to sharing the message of Jesus. I have no interest in wasting anyone's time of speaking into anyone's life with a false authority, you know, of sharing, you know, concocted 2,000-year-old fables. There's other things I can do with my time. You know, I can pivot, but I believe this. That's why I'm committed to sharing this. This is the truth. I believe it. Why? Why not believe this was all fabricated? Why not believe it's false? Well, let's do a little Dateline Investigates. You know, I love Dateline. That's the oldest thing about me. I have an older heart, some people would say. The oldest thing about me, I've always loved Dateline. I love Keith Morrison. Guy should have been a preacher. Best voice narrator of all time. That's a side thing. But, I mean, when we really get into this, I mean, we, you, you should investigate it. And, and in a court case, it's about evidence. It's about facts that we can ascertain about the situation. It's also about motive. Some people say motive's irrelevant in a court case. Yeah, right. You know, if, if it's all about reasonable doubt, that's what we're trying to get to. You've got you to understand why. What was driving the people involved? If you don't understand that, well, then there's reasonable doubt. There's doubt right there. So, so let's start with motive. You know, what was the motive? I, I can figure out the motive really easily for the religious institution that rejected the resurrection of Jesus. They wanted to retain power. They want to retain influence. That's plain as day. That's obvious. That's most institutions like I've talked about. You know, that's the motivation of a lot of people who deny the resurrection. It's so interesting how many people I've encountered in pastoral ministry. You know, they start talking to me. They say, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of started to deconstruct my faith. And then three weeks later, you find out they're divorcing their spouse. And you're like, oh, Fascinating how quickly this all came together. You started deconstructing your faith three weeks ago, and now you're divorcing your spouse. You know, and you start to wonder, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you feel like divorcing your spouse, and so suddenly your belief system is standing in the way of your preference for how you're going to live your life, and so, well, we'll just do away. We'll start deconstructing. We'll do away with that, because I have this way that I want to go with my life. Okay, mixed motives, right? What's the motive of the disciples? You know, they're just drumming up the story. You have to understand, they're embedded in the Jewish religion to say that Jesus was not only king, but he was divine and God is the crime of blasphemy. It's a damnable offense in their minds before God. So they know they're just concocting this. So they just know they're lying. In their Jewish mindset, they are basically damning themselves for all of eternity. Well, if they're willing to face eternal damnation for their lie against God, it must have meant worldly wealth and pleasure, right? Well, they're going to get a little temporary fun before the end, before all of the you know, judgment that they're going to face on the other side. What then of the fact that they were all tortured and executed? They had their property confiscated. They were forced to flee like refugees from their hometowns. They were constantly trying to escape beatings and persecution. They weren't to become wealthy through their testimony, but poor like Jesus. So you're telling me their motive is 
being damned in life, damned in eternity, all for a lie that says that God's grace is available for anyone and everyone through faith in Jesus, resurrection for the dead, even for their enemies. They're promoting that lie for what? In contrast, other faith traditions were led by men whose earthly motivations are very easy to ascertain, very easy to figure out. It's all in the historical records. A lot of times, someone with a brand new faith tradition operating alone gets some vision, some divine inspiration, and then they get land and money and influence and usually too many wives. I mean, let's be honest with each other. Uh, Modern cults and a lot of the other faith traditions in history, you can look at the historical accounts, a lot of times these visions from God end up involving, now I get to marry everybody, which just sounds like someone that's out of their mind anyway, that that's how they want to live their life. But that's beside the point. Every single one of those faith traditions, every single one of those leaders whose earthly motivations are so obvious, they all have tombs, too, that you can visit to this day where their bodies are buried. Jesus, the most famous and influential religious figure in all of history, does not have a tomb that's venerated because there is no place where his body lay. His body would be more venerated than any other religious figure in all of history, but it cannot be venerated because he is risen. And if he hadn't, and they had fabricated this story, surely one of them, among the many who saw him, would have recanted before being fed to lions in the Colosseum. But not one. But not one recanted what they saw in Jesus. They held to their testimony, and so this unstoppable movement began against all odds. The resurrection is a true historical event. But this unstoppable movement that began against all odds, that takes me to the second point about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates God's unstoppable power. When we're reflecting on it, yeah, it's true, it's historical, but it also demonstrates a lot of things. It demonstrates, first of all, God's unstoppable power. You see all the obstacles that they put in the path of Jesus? They're conspiring against him, betraying him, killing him. And then when it came to his burial, they put the stone in front of the tomb. It didn't matter how heavy it was. They put a seal upon the tomb. It didn't matter how secure. They put guards in front of the tomb. It didn't matter how watchful. They had all this money, right? They had all these bribes that they gave out. It didn't matter how much money they gave. They fabricated the stories. It didn't matter how convincing. The religious institution and the political institutions came together, but it didn't matter how influential these groups were. None of it mattered. None of it could contain or frustrate the plan of God. Jesus is risen in victory. All dark and earthly powers are disarmed. The stone to seal the grave has become a place for an angel to kick up his feet. He just sits upon it. You know, and every one of these false words spoken against Jesus are going to be accounted for before his throne. I think of the sun. I think of the literal sun. You know, sometimes the clouds like this morning, oh, ho-hum-us in Huntington Beach. It's so chilly. The sun is obscured right now. We can't see it. It's hidden behind the clouds, but it's there. It's burning. You know, sometimes it's night, and it's away from our view. But it's always there, burning, burning, burning. The Son of God is always there, seated upon the throne in power. Nothing can stand in God's way. Not plagues, not wars, not money, not politics, not schemes, nor conspiracies 
Are you living in the freedom that God will have His way with human history? Are you living in the freedom that is available to you as someone who has faith in Jesus that God will have His way with human history no matter what human beings do? Or are you still living in fear because of the times and circumstances of this world? That brings me to my third point. The resurrection of Jesus causes fear for those who don't believe, but it comforts those who do. Fear is an appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus if you aren't right with God. The guards were right to shake and turn white and drop like dead men. So will many who believe that they are the God over their own life. And when they die, and when they come face to face with God in actuality, they'll have that impulse to run away, but their heart's going to give out in shock, and they'll fall before their Lord. Now for those who turn from their own ways, for those who trust in God, those who turn to Jesus, they're comforted. Do not be afraid. It's spoken twice to these women by both the angel and by Jesus. And I'm brought back to the calm demeanor of the angel, simply perched upon the rock and the, and the commonplace you know, greeting of Jesus saying, hello. It's so dry. It's so commonplace. It's so just natural. But this is what happens to us as Christians when we live in faith. The supernatural becomes natural to us. We're able to live with this otherworldly confidence of eternity at all times. And yet so many of us are still gripped with fears and worries. Makes me think of this. So, you know, guys, I hate heights. It figures into my fear of flying. Those are two things I don't like. I don't like being on a giant ladder. I also don't like being in a flying object 30,000 feet above the ground. I don't like heights. There's gravity. I'm meant to be here, right? And some of you can relate to me in this. So I naturally despise ropes courses. Is there anyone else out there with me that despises ropes courses? Thank you very much for being honest. I don't feel too comforted because there's only three of you. The rest of you understand where I'm going to go with this. I, I lead a team, the staff team, and I have never taken them on a team building exercise at a ropes course because I want to live. All right? I prefer to live. But the thing about a ropes course, right? You're up there if you're me, and you have a rope attached to you, and sometimes you have a net beneath you, and you have all this security. Nothing is going to happen to you, and yet you just can't get over your instinct to fear. And I feel like this is a perfect analogy for so many Christians in our world today who have this faith in the Lord. Guys, the will and the power of God is unstoppable. We have the resurrection. We have eternity. We have forgiveness. We have this confidence of God's power and sovereignty. We've got a rope attached to us. we got a net beneath us. But then we start looking at the times. We start looking at our circumstances. And we just can't get over that instinct to fear and worry and be concerned. And we got to step back. When, you know, when there's money problems and relationship problems and there's things in the news, you got to just feel behind you, okay, you have the assurance of Christ. You have the future. 
that's going to make this feel like nothing in comparison. It's going to be overshadowed by glory. The worst things you've ever known are going to be redeemed in some way by the power of God. The net is there. Face it with confidence. Tackle the course. Engage with it then. That's a word for all of us that the resurrection would change our disposition. It has to change our disposition through this life. We have a security unknown to anyone else in this world. But the resurrection doesn't just change our disposition, but our very identities, our very selves. The resurrection of Jesus fundamentally transforms our identity. Think about this, guys, the power of this. Mary Magdalene, one of the two women to first see Jesus, was a woman that you know is connected with a lot of accounts in the Gospels, but the most sure account connected with her is that she was possessed by seven demons. Seven is a number of completeness in the Jewish mindset. What that means is she's completely demon-possessed, head to toe under the influence and the torture and the burden of evil. And who was she on the other side of Jesus and the resurrection? But the first to see him raised and the first to declare the gospel message that has transformed the world and all of human history. She was fundamentally transformed by the resurrection. And who were the disciples? The betrayers, those who'd made all these commitments and promises to Jesus and then failed to live up to every single one of them. Well, they were the ones that Jesus was sending those women to, to prepare them for his return, for his appearance. And when he referred to them, what did he call them? Did he say, I want you to go to those betrayers. I want you to go to those lowlifes. I want you to go to those sinners. I want you to go to those guys who made all those promises and all those commitments, and they're so false, and they're so empty, and they're worthless. Those sniveling slaves of God, you go show them what's true. Is that how Jesus referred to him? No, it's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I want you to go tell my brothers. They're my brothers. This is the power of the resurrection to fundamentally change our identities. The power of the resurrection not only brings the dead to life, but it redeems the living from death itself. Some of you need to be redeemed from death even as you're alive. You need to receive the promise of this fundamentally transformed identity. You could be somebody with demons from head to toe. And through the ministry of Christ, you're going to become a herald for the good news, filled with purpose. You may have failed every commitment. You may have fallen short in every way imaginable. And Jesus says, I will sustain you by my grace. You will be my brother. That's the power of the resurrection, not only to bring the dead to life, but to redeem the living from death. I love the resurrection story. And I want us to receive the empowerment that comes through it by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me as I invite up the team, as we enter into a time of worship? This isn't just a part of our service. Say we move through the speaking part. Now we move into the worship part, the singing part, the prayer part. This is God's word. God has spoken to us. These are the 
accounts that are true, that have the power to shape and transform not all of human history, but also our lives as well. So this is a moment for us to respond, to offer our hearts where we're at today and receive the grace and the empowerment that the Spirit wants to provide for each of us no matter where we are. And Lord, I want to start this morning by asking for the power of your Holy Spirit to come upon those who have never placed their faith in you, who are dead in their sin, or those who have fallen into death even though they're alive in you. Lord, would you redeem the living from death? Would many give their hearts to you this morning? Lord, if they've never believed in you before, would they believe in the resurrection, that it's a true historical event that changes everything? Your will is unstoppable in human history. There's fear for those who don't believe, but there's comfort for those who will. Lord, would you lead many this morning, today, to faith and trust in you that they would be comforted, that they would be fundamentally transformed in their identity. You can cause someone who's burdened by evil from head to toe, completely filled with this demonic oppression into someone who could be the first to see you risen, into somebody who will carry your gospel message to others, privileged in that place by your grace. You have visions. You have purpose for every life in this room, every soul in this room. It could be somebody who's failed every commitment. They've fallen short in every way imaginable. And yet, Jesus, you want to encourage them. For through faith in you, they have become your brother. Speak that over my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord. Lift up the self-understanding of those who are low this morning through faith in you. Lord, would you comfort us through this account of your resurrection. Here we are, God. Maybe we're standing in a place that's scary. There's anxiety. There's unknown. Certainly always in this world, but maybe in our personal lives, with our health, with our relationships. Lord, would we feel, would we sense the comfort of your Holy Spirit? The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead we've received in our own bodies We can look down. There's a net. We can look behind us. There's a rope attached to us. We cannot fail. We cannot fall because our eternity is secure in you, Jesus. Give us the strength to face the future with confidence. You spoke it so many times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You of little faith. Why are you afraid? We don't want to be those of little faith. We want to be filled with trust in the power of your resurrection. Jesus You are the guide of all human history. Heavenly Father, you're the guide of all human history. Nothing is happening that's outside of your view. Your will is unstoppable because the resurrection is true. Fill us with confidence. Fill us with the empowerment of your spirit. Minister to your children this morning.